Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Fellowship Greenville Student Ministry Podcast. This week we've got a special timely message on the idea of revival. If you've been watching social media or the news in the past month, you have seen this word floating around, and it certainly seems like God is up to something in our country right now. So follow along as we observe three principles of what revival is and what our heart posture needs to be as we engage in the movements of the Spirit. We hope you enjoy this message. All right, everyone settled? Welcome, welcome. Hello, fam. Lemon, hello. Hello, hello. Love you guys. Hey, it's been a hot minute since I've been with you, so let me just take a second to reacquaint myself. My name is Matt. It's been a minute. Listen, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, our beloved Dallas Greenaway got in a tragic... I don't know why I said tragic, because he's, he's fine. He got in a car accident. It, it wasn't tragic. He's fine. The other person's fine. The only thing that might have been tragic was Dallas was hauling 80 pizzas for our United night two weeks ago, and maybe a couple of them got messed up. But two weeks ago, I got a call from Dallas, and he's saying, dude, I just got in a car wreck. I'm okay, but I'm not going to be able to make it tonight. I can't teach tonight. And so two weeks ago, we had my good friend Tommy Rutt come and teach on United Night. Last minute, too. That's a hard, that's a hard call. Call on your boy and be like, hey, bro, uh, I need you. And he's like, uh, I don't have a sermon. I'm like, you've got a whole car ride from your house to the church to make a sermon in your head, my guy. And he did it, and I heard Tommy did an amazing job. Is that right? You guys enjoyed Tommy? And then, and then last week, I was teaching... I was teaching for a church, uh, and their student uh, retreat, kind of like their epic, I was teaching for a church, and my boy Tyler Smith came last Sunday. Did you guys enjoy Tyler? Were you blessed by Tyler? Uh, I received, let let me just take a minute here to, uh, (laughs) let me take a minute here to just shepherd, shepherd my flock. Let me shepherd my flock. Uh, I had no, no idea what Tyler uh, ended up teaching about because truth be told, when he and I talked about it, he changed his mind and then came in that Sunday night with something entirely different. And so I received numerous texts last Sunday night. I was in prayer. I was before the throne room of God interceding on behalf of my sheep, interceding on behalf of the students I was ministering to at this other church, and my phone starts blowing up. Multiple, multiple of my flock, of my people, multiple started spamming my phone with all sorts of embarrassing photos that my, that my dear friend Tyler Smith brought, unbeknownst to me, he didn't run any of that by me, I don't even know where he got those, but photos of your boy from like, I'm talking 2009, 2008 maybe, and I'm before the throne room of God praying, oh God. I pray for my sheep. I was praying for you all by name, first, middle, and last. And all of a sudden, I'm getting a bunch of nonsense texts like this. Yo, what up, Riz Master? What up? Yo, W Riz. All sorts of nonsense texts, photos of me from 09. I have bones to pick and qualms to settle, and I will. I will. But I'll do it in prayer. So just be ready for, the, for what the Lord wants to do in your life through my prayers. All right. Guys, uh, all jokes aside, it is so good to be back with you. I I genuinely miss uh, you guys when I'm not with you on a regular basis. I genuinely do pray. I don't 
pray prayers of curse, but prayers of blessing and gratitude. So I'm glad to be back. Sam, what's up, man? Hey, buddy. Dude, so good to see you, bro. I was actually in the back of my head. I was praying for you by name, and, and the Lord answered that prayer. Man, way to go, dude. Um, speaking of Sam, my pockets right now, this is not planned. My pockets are filled with colorful babies because it seems like no matter where I go in this building, someone is giving me colorful babies. Sam DeFour, among many in the junior class, thank you so much for the colorful babies. Let me toss that guy out right there. Heads up. The other one's right there. All right. I have missed you. That's the bottom line. It is good to be home. So, thanks, Tommy. So, right now, if you've been on... If you've been on Instagram, if you've been on TikTok, if the algorithm kicks you any type of spiritual content, if it doesn't, we may need to talk. Hey, yo. But if it kicks you any type of spiritual content, you may have seen the word revival floating around. You may have seen the word revival floating around. Now, usually we navigate through a series, and right now we're in the midst of a series called Jesus Is, But Also. Every week, we kind of look at two characteristics of Jesus that on paper seemingly contradict themselves. They don't seem to work in harmony, but we look at them and we see, wow, that is the robust character of Jesus. We've been in that series for a few weeks. We have paused due to Tyler coming in and Tommy coming in and stuff like that. Originally, we were going to continue that series tonight. But every now and then, as you know, something happens in our culture. Something happens in our country or our world that carries such a gravity and has so much attention that we feel like, as a student ministry, it is good and appropriate to pause whatever we were normally doing and put a focus on this thing. And if you've been online at all, social media at all, even just word of mouth, you might have heard this word in the past couple weeks. Has anyone in this room heard the term revival in the past few weeks? And if your hand's not up, it's no embarrassment. Someone's like, yes, pastor, I have heard. Wow. It's going to be an easy crowd tonight if I'm getting applause at that question. So I, I can't wait for what's coming. Uh, it's okay if you haven't, but right now the idea of revival is fresh on everyone's mind. It's fresh on everyone's heart. And it's largely because of a little town called Wilmore, Kentucky. Now, in Kentucky, what? Okay. In Kentucky, this little town called Wilmore is home to about 6,000 people. 6,000 people. On our upcoming Easter services here at Fellowship Greenville, throughout the course of that weekend, we will have close to 6,000 people come through our doors. So 6,000 people is not the largest town you've ever heard of. It's a very small town. It's a very rural town. And in the midst of Wilmore, Kentucky, in the midst of Wilmore, Kentucky, there's a university called Asbury University, and it's a theological school, and people go there to study theology. And there's a chapel there. And on February 8th, they were having a normal chapel service, like they do every day. And the campus pastor was giving a message. And at the end of his message, which he later confessed, he thought he whiffed, by the way, like in hindsight, he looked back, he's like, I thought, I thought I totally whiffed that message. I did not think it was that good. But at the end of his message, he gives this invitation to the room. He says, hey, if, if you need to confess your sin, the altar is open. That was his invitation. You've heard a similar invitation. You've heard it from me. You've heard it. If you've been in the church world longer than six months, you've probably heard some of that kind of language. 
And truth be told, that's not radically profound. Like no one in this room is prompted to all of a sudden be like, oh, (laughs) I'm ready. Like that invitation is a pretty common invitation. If you have sin, the altar is open. And he kind of left it at that. And the piano guy was kind of like winding it down, playing a few last things. And students were lingering, which is not uncommon after a chapel service. Every Sunday, you guys linger here. You stay here, you stay out in the room. That's not uncommon. But all of a sudden, people in the Asbury Chapel noticed something. In unison, about 20 to 30 students stood up, came forward, and began to pray at the altar. I hope someone is thirsty. My goodness, Dallas Greenaway. Golly. Guys, there is a way to open cans without that pop. I'm going to teach you later. Jeez. 20 to 30 students in unison came forward to the altar, which grabbed the attention of leadership, as it should. Like, whoa, okay, God might be doing something. And those 20, 30 students came to the altar in the front of the room and just began to pour themselves out before a holy God, confessing their sin to God. Something got stirred up in them, and they felt like this is no regular moment, and we have to respond to a holy God with repentance and bring our sin before him in this place. 20 to 30, in unison, came forward. Now, here's what happened. The pianist, sitting there, kind of saw these students come forward and thought, oh, I, I need to you know, play a little bit, put some swells on it, help this moment not be so silent, like just fill the air a little bit. Here's what he described. Later, that pianist was interviewed. He said he looked up from playing. He looked up from playing and noticed two things. One, 10 hours had gone by. Two, this room, which has a capacity of about 600 people maybe, was packed to the brim full of people. He had not noticed He literally began to play for the students at the altar, and the next moment he looked up, 10 hours had gone by, and the room was packed. Something happened, something sacred, something significant happened in these moments in this chapel in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury University. It's being described as a lot of things. Revival is one of them. But no matter what you want to call it, the Lord did something in that moment poured out his spirit in that moment, stirred up his people in that moment, and they responded to a holy God. And in that moment, the manifest presence of Jesus Christ filled that room as people were at the altar, and a movement began. And I say began. Now that was on February 8th. The next few days, if you know the story, the next few days... Asbury's leadership just responded by continuing whatever the Spirit wanted to do. So for the next few days, that environment went on for 24 hours a day. And here's what's amazing. It wasn't prompted. No one was like bringing the hype. They didn't realize what was happening and then like, oh, dude, we need to call an audible. Someone get a preacher up there. Yo, give them the best message you have got. Just create the hype. It wasn't any hype. It wasn't any excitement. There was no haze machine. There was no LED lights. The room that this was going on in is over 100 years old. I'm talking dark, stained brown wood everywhere, huge organ on the back wall. Guys, I kid you not, the emergency exit signs hovering above the door in that chapel are stained glass exit signs. I kid you not. 
Like, imagine your grandma's Baptist church and then wind it back another decade. I, I'm, I'm just saying, if we're talking about an environment that you would think would prompt people, and I don't, it, it was intergenerational, but it started with college students, and largely it has been college students. If you could imagine the environment that your generation says, yo, that's where revival is going to break out, this would not be the room. And it was beautiful because of that. It wasn't the hype. It wasn't the atmosphere. It wasn't prompted. There was no manipulation. There was no celebrity guest list. This wasn't a scheduled thing. It just happened because God met his people as they were confessing sin. So the next few days, 24 hours nonstop, they just began to respond to this. Show of hands, anyone in this room been on a student retreat, like a youth retreat, like Epic or something like that? Even if it's not Epic, you've been on something like that? All right, the... Thank you, brother, that late hand, but I appreciate it. Oh, oh, yes, I have been on that. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate that. All right, so you guys know on Epic or, or Student Retreats, we try to create a moment where we believe the Spirit has opened a window and we give you guys an opportunity to respond to what the Spirit is doing. It's an invitation night, and that night is, is packed with emotions. If you've ever been on one, a retreat, then you know it's like people are just weeping and crying and kind of coming to grips with some of the sinful patterns of life and they're reconciling with enemies and they're pouring out their sin and they're rejoicing in the Lord and they kind of lose a sense of the realities of life and they're swept up in the presence of God. Imagine that moment, that 20-minute moment, but nonstop for 24 hours a day. Unprompted, non-manipulated, non-scripted, you literally have the leadership of this university seeing what God is doing and, and, and literally building the plane while they're flying in the air. They're trying to figure it out. 24 hours a day. Well, eventually the leadership started to get delirious because they're going like three, four days without sleep. And they're, they're like, <laughs> they're delirious, man. If they didn't have the gift of tongues, at the end of those four days, they did. I mean, they're, they're just, they're out there. And so then they decided, all right, we, we need to like start to to maybe create a rhythm here. And so then they began at 2 a.m. every morning, they're going to pause, they're going to dismiss everyone, and they'll pick it back up again around 8 a.m. in the morning. So they give it a six-hour window. Go get some sleep and come back. That environment, which started with the purest of motives of confessing sin before a holy God, that, that moment, in Wilmore, Kentucky, began to spread by word of mouth and social media posts, and all of a sudden people started traveling to Wilmore to see what was going on. I have a picture of, of the chapel. Look at, look at this chapel here. So this is the chapel, end of the room. There's the big organ. Everything's wood-stained, dark, big lighting in the room. Like It feels old. It is old. It's, just, it's an old room. And God's spirit is manifest. There's a balcony that wraps around this entire room. There's a floor in this room which accommodates many, many people. Guys, February 8th, this began. They just formally ended it yesterday, February 24th. Leadership said, hey, we're going to pause it. We're not ending what God is doing, but we're pausing how he's doing it here because we need to get like classes back and people have like jobs and stuff. Wilmore, home to 6,000 people, became home to about fifty to 70,000 people on a regular basis. 
Word of mouth began to spread. People from all over the country began to hear what is happening in Wilmore, Kentucky. It seems like God's spirit is doing something and we've got to go see it. People began to travel from all over the southeast, the northeast, New England, and Midwest, California, Hawaii. People from all over the nation began to travel and then it became international. This sleepy town of 6,000 started to house 50 to 70,000 people a day, bustling at the seams with people desperate to encounter the presence of God. And it started with confession of sin. Eventually, the line to get in began to flood out of this auditorium. It began to lap the campus and eventually began to lap blocks through Wilmore, just wrapping around the town itself. Hours of waiting just to get a glimpse at what's going on in this room. And so then they began to set up overflow. They put screens out on the sidewalks and they started projecting what was going on. And worship, widespread worship, just began to break out out on the sidewalks and in other rooms. The Spirit of God was made manifest. And people began responding, receiving, and repenting. Asbury called up some local churches and said, we need help. We got people just flooding to the altar. Look at this next photo. This is the regular scene at Asbury's chapel. That last picture makes it seem like everyone's kind of orderly and in their seats, and for the most part they are, but the altar, which began this moment where God's Spirit poured Himself out, the altar is regularly packed and flooded with this scene right here. People on their knees, face down, pouring themselves out before a holy God. Sometimes alone, sometimes with each other. Asbury called some churches in the area and said, we need a prayer ministry. Can you send people? Can you send your priests and your clergy and your pastors? We need people to pray over and pray with these people who are coming to the altar of God. It began February 8th, and for the first few days, it did not stop for 24 hours. And then they adjusted it, and it lasted till 2 a.m., and they paused, and they'd pick it up again at 8 a.m. And they just kept going, unprompted, unscripted, Non-manipulated, no hype, no energy, no celebrity guest list. In fact, many well-known pastors reached out to Asbury and said, hey, I want to come. Is there anything you need me to do? Asbury responded like this, "Uh, no, we want you to receive what Jesus is doing. In fact, if you can just wait in line like everyone else, that would be great. Amen. It was not about the celebrity guest list. It was not about who would draw the most crowds. The Spirit of God can do that just fine. What's the news dude's name, Tucker Carlson? Who's a news person in this room? Fox, is that right? Somebody help me out. Okay, they reached out to Asbury. They said, hey, we want to come visit. Asbury said, no, thank you. We don't want the publicity. It's not a political thing. No one's running for office. No one's making money here. The Spirit of God is doing something, and this is mostly young people, college people, finding meaning and purpose by encountering the living God. They told Fox News, stay at home. Asbury was not trying to make money. Asbury was not trying to publicize this. Asbury is just responding to what, the, what God was doing. Then all of a sudden, other moments began to happen. Lee University in Tennessee, boom, same thing happened. Cedarville University in Ohio, boom, same thing happened. Stanford University, boom, same thing happened. California, street preachers on the sidewalk preaching the gospel. People are responding in droves, singing publicly, worshiping God in California. Hello, Christians are gathering in mass on Santa Monica Beach to worship Jesus. If you haven't turned on the news, turn it on. There's international things happening right now all over the world that all of a sudden it's like, ooh, okay. Uh, 
God is always at work. We know that. God is everywhere at once. We know that. But it seems like he's working in some real unique ways right now. And could this be the beginning of something significant? So, I drove up to Asbury. I had to see it. Your boy had to know. The guy that discipled me in college, he's kind of a spiritual father of mine, he was one of the priests that was called upon to facilitate the prayer ministry. And so I felt like I had an insider's perspective, and he was giving me like what the Lord is doing, and he was helping me see it for the purity that it was. And I wasn't caught up in the hype on social media because before you know it, everyone had a hot take. Everyone had an opinion. Is this real? No, it's not real. Like everyone had some kind of opinion. I went. I had to see it. Some of you guys know that I went. I posted it on my social media, and I had like a little interactive, ask me anything. I was there. I had some great questions come in. Someone asked me, man, what was it like? What was the presence of the Spirit like? And I, I would just say this. The presence of God was manifest in that room. The presence of God could be felt as if you were underwater and you were swimming. It was a, it was a holy play. I, I, I don't know how to explain it in human terms. I fall short. The pre- presence of God was manifest tangibly in that room. People are like, man, I like it. Is, is, is this revival? Like, what? Could we get this going back at fellowship? I got that question a lot. Could we do this at fellowship? Could we get it going at fellowship? Could we have a revival here? I got a lot of questions like that. I got a lot of questions about like, hey, I've heard rumors. I heard this isn't happening. I heard that was happening. Like, what do you think about that? <laughs> so there's a lot of opinions out there, and I tried to answer as many as I could. But I went, and here's what I'll say. The Spirit of God is pouring himself out. The Spirit of God is manifest in that place. The moment you walk in the room, you feel it. And here's what's amazing. Again, it's not hype. It's not like a wild set list of musicians just going at it. In fact, many times they just stopped the music altogether. And the people's voices carried the room for hours. People flooding to the altar. I never once, when I was there, saw that altar empty. Never once. People are at the altar weeping, and you can hear their wails. They fill the room. There's repentance of sin. There's desperation for Jesus. There's hunger for the presence of God. It's not hype. It's not energy. And mostly, and here's one of the most beautiful things to me about it, mostly it's being led, organized, and facilitated by people who are just a few years older than you. College students are the bulk of the leadership that's running this thing. And dude, they'll, they'll tell you, we don't have a clue what we're doing, man. We're just trying to pay attention to what God's doing. I'm talking like 19 years old. The stage was full of about 30 to 40 college students at any given time, various leadership roles, singing, so on and so forth. Your generation, God is pouring his spirit out. And I think inviting your generation to be the tip of the spear and what might become a movement of God. Something we haven't seen in decades. The last time we saw something like this was about 50 years ago. 50, 5 God's up to something. So the question is, what? What is revival? Can we make it happen here? Is that even possible? So tonight, I thought it would be cool just to like pause the Jesus is, but also, and bring us into the idea of revival and talk about what it is. Revival's not a biblical word, but it's a biblical concept. You won't find the word in the Bible, but you also won't find Trinity, or you won't find rapture either. But you can read enough and discover, oh, these concepts exist. 
and we put some meat on the bones. And so let's talk about revival. There's a pastor in New York. His name is John Tyson. He's Australian, but he pastors in New York. He's got a thick, lovely Australian accent when he teaches, and I find it just lovely. But he's Australian, and he has some great insight into what's going on. John Tyson says this, the Spirit of God comes where he's wanted. And I think that as a baseline of operating is a great place to start. The Spirit of God comes where he's wanted. So do you want the Spirit? Before you say yes, yes, we're Christians, of course. Remember, the Spirit of God, if we read the Scriptures, the Spirit of God And we talked about this three weeks ago now. He's not just comforter, he's convictor. The Spirit of God comes to convict sin as well. We tend to think about him like, yeah, we want the Spirit. Oh, I want to feel him like water in a pool, Matt. That sounds amazing. Don't forget, that altar was flooded with people in conviction. The Spirit of God comes where he's wanted. John Tyson says this, there's three circles to this idea of revival. The middle circle is this uh, notion of Devotion. I did not mean to rhyme that, but I kind of like it. The notion of devotion. In the center of this circle, you've got devotion. And devotion is simply this. I love Jesus, and Jesus is enough for me. Not Jesus plus. I don't need Jesus plus the weekend. I don't need Jesus plus my boyfriend. I don't need Jesus plus my girlfriend. I'm here on Sunday night because Jesus is enough for me. I'm here on Sunday night because Jesus is who I'm desperate for. I'm not here for other people. I'm not here because I'm supposed to be. I'm not here because we live in the South and you come to church on a Sunday and that's culturally what you do. Jesus is the center of my devotion. My whole life is desperate for Jesus. He's enough. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's where my heart is. Tyson would describe the center of revival as devotion to Jesus. And then you kind of have this next ring, which is called desire. This idea of like people who are devoted to Jesus and the Spirit of God begins to pour himself out on devoted people. You've got this next ring of people who desire a move of God. They want to experience God. They want to feel what the devoted people feel. But they're kind of looking at it from like, oh, okay, I kind of want that. I'm not sure I have it, but I want it. Now, you got to be careful because desire can be good. It can also be bad. People could look at a movement of God and easily and quickly discern, yeah, I know how to capitalize on this. I know how to build my platform on this. I can get more followers on social media through this. I can make a brand out of this. Like People can capitalize pretty quick on movements of God. Desires can be evil as well. But you've got this ring of desire where people see what God is doing among people of devotion And they want it. They want to experience it. I think, and that's not a bad thing, I think most of the people that went to Wilmore, Kentucky were in the desire ring. Man, it seems like God is pouring himself out. I want to experience that. I desire to know what that is like. If I can be around revived people, then maybe I will experience revival. It's a ring of desire. And then on the outskirts, you've got a ring of distraction. You've got this other ring, which is kind of like everyone has an opinion, everyone has a hot take. If you followed the Asbury Revival for longer than like 30 minutes, you quickly discovered, oh, there's a lot of people that have their own little opinion about it. Like, this isn't a real revival because X, Y, Z. No, this is not a revival. They they have their own little hot take. You know, one of the most common things I heard about the Asbury Revival is like, the gospel's not being preached there. 
I heard that all the time. It's just a bunch of singing. <laughs> Two things. One, you're going to have a really, really problematic time when we get to heaven, and that's all we do. Don't know how to tell you that, bro. Uh, number two, I went, the gospel was clearly preached, invitation to respond to the gospel was given, and many people received salvation the night I was there. So I don't know where this rumor happened, but no, it's, that's not true. But, but this is my point. It's like anyone who's looking at something from a distance and seeing what God might be doing, instead of humbly going and seeing it for themselves, will just form opinions on the outer ring, and it becomes so distracting. Before you know it, you're giving more attention to all these hot takes and all these opinions than you are to what God is doing in the midst of devoted people. Before you know it, you are distracted. You're not even paying attention to what the Spirit might be doing because you're so caught up with, I I, want to be right, and oh, it's too emotive, and people are being too expressive in their emotions, or it's too rigid, and they're being too reverent, and like all of a sudden you just get so caught up in every opinion people have, and you no longer are even tuned into what God might be doing in the midst of of his people. And I got to be honest, guys, Christians are pretty notorious for doing this. We, we hold opinions deeply and we want to express them when we know that we're right and we think everyone else is wrong. I'm convinced that when, when our Lord comes back a, a second time, there will be many Christians that meet him and say, uh, hey, bro, you, you did that the wrong way. Uh, according to the Bible, you weren't supposed to do it like that. <laughs> I think Jesus will say, grace to you and peace. Let me do my thing. Sword out of my mouth, eyes on fire, robe dipped in blood. Read the book of Revelation. Don't worry about what I'm doing. Be devoted to God. I think Christians are notorious for like, no, we're we're right because we read the Bible. And it's like, yes, let God do his thing though. There was a lot of hot takes about Asbury. So I went. I wanted to see. I wanted to experience it. It was amazing. The gospel was preached. We sang worship for hours lost ourselves in, in the time. Sin was confessed. Repentance happened. Salvations were received. It didn't happen while I was there, but other times demons were removed from people. Other times people were heal, healed of ailments or illnesses. Like this is a movement of God. God is pouring his manifest spirit out. So that's what's going on in Asbury right now. Now, John chapter 6. Let's just look at this story, this passage. Jesus is, is kind of capping his second year of ministry, of doing ministry, ending his second year. One of his most well known miracles Jesus performs, he feeds. We call it the feeding of the 5,000. You guys heard of this? We call it the feeding of the 5,000. But if you read the Gospel of Mark, Mark gives us this little clue. Mark says, hey, they head counted only men. They didn't head count women and children. And you might say, oh, Matt, we don't know that women and children were there. That's that outer ring of distraction, if you can't tell by my voice. Oh, we don't know that. Um, actually, the disciples grabbed a little boy's lunch that Jesus manifests into the miracle. We do know there were women and children there. But they only had counted men. It's called the feeding of the 5,000. But if you kind of estimate, well, if women and children were there, they only had counted men, I don't know, maybe, maybe close to 10 to 12,000 people, conservative estimate, fair estimate. 
Jesus performs this miracle for 10,000 people plus. And he feeds them with fish and bread, and they spend the night in the nearby area. Similar to Asbury, we experience something. We're coming to Wilmore. We're going to set up camp. People slept in their cars. It was wild, man. It was like, it was just like squatters in the town of Wilmore. Like, people were just aligned. I mean, the town was like, I, they had no capacity to handle it. People are just parked in their cars and sleeping. It's pretty wild. So people are following Jesus in a similar fashion. They're curious to know what is going to happen next. He's just performed the feeding of thousands of people. John chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats, went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Basically, it's like, yo, Jesus just fed us, but we don't see him. We know where he's at. And so these crowds go and they find Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, when did you get here? In other words, like, we were, lo- we were waiting, bro. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Let's pause there for a second. What is Jesus doing? He's putting their motives in check. There's thousands of people that experienced a miracle by Jesus. What was the miracle? Jesus fed them bread and fish, multiplied a little boy's lunch to feed thousands. The next morning, they wake up. Morning. They're hungry. It's breakfast. So who do they look for? Jesus. We're hungry. Well, that dude just made dinner yesterday. You think he could make breakfast today? Yeah, where is he? He's over there. Let's go. And they come looking for Jesus. Jesus checks their motives. He says, hey, you're not trying to find me because of the miracle you saw. In other words, the miracle didn't lead you to conclude I might be God. You're here to get What? Bread. You're here because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're here because you want another baguette. You're here because you're hungry. You're not here because you might think I'm God. You're here because you want me to produce something else for you. You know what we call this in our country? Consumerism. Jesus is checking their motives. The question is, do you follow Jesus because of who he is or what he does for you? That's what Jesus is checking here. You're not following me because of the miracle. You're following me because you're hungry. Jesus then says, don't work for the food that perishes, but food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They looked around to one another. They said, what, do we must, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. They said, well, then what sign do you do that we can believe in you? In other words, they say what? Prove it. Do you know the irony going on here? Literally less than 24 hours ago, Jesus took a little boy's lunch, looked out at masses, thousands of people, realizing there's not enough food to feed them all, prayed over this food in his hand and began distributing to the crowds. Mark chapter 6 says there was so much food that the disciples even took up leftovers. 
the miracle of feeding the masses, happened less than 24 hours ago. And now Jesus is looking at those same people and he's saying, hey, you're following me because you want something from me. You want a show. You want a spectacle. You want Jesus plus. Jesus plus make me wealthy. Jesus plus fill my stomach. Jesus plus give me a sign. Jesus says, that's not it, fam. I'm paraphrasing the Greek here, but he says, that's not it, fam. And they say, all right, well, what should we be doing then? Jesus says, believe in the one that God has sent. Well, prove it. Show us that you're the one that God has sent. Less than 24 hours, he just produced the miracle. They're looking at him and saying, prove that you're really worthy of following. How many significant things does Jesus do in your life? You look at them, and then you look back to Jesus, and you're like, mm, yeah, you're going to have to outdo yourself for me to really, like, I'm 99% in, bro. But you got to do some, just one more thing, and, I, and I'm there. Jesus has already proved who he is, but the crowds are saying, well, what do you have to do? What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? The irony, the selfishness of this statement. What work do you perform? And then they point to an Old Testament example. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. That's when God made bread rain from heaven, literally, in the book of Exodus. Our fathers ate manna. It's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, well, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave them bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, well, give us that bread. So what are they thinking? That Jesus somehow has literal bread somewhere. Yo, you got some sourdough tucked away? Yo, dog, you got some pumpernickel we don't see? You got that rye bread? What, like, what's this bread, from, this bread from heaven? What is that? And Jesus is not talking about earthly bread, but what? Heavenly bread. He's talking about himself. Jesus is speaking in a metaphor. They look at him and they say, hey, what sign do you perform? Prove that you are worthy to follow. God made bread come from heaven. What can you do? Jesus says, yo, homeboy, God's made bread come from heaven again. But he's not talking about physical bread. He's talking about himself. But they're not getting it. It's way over their head. So Jesus, in his grace and patience, verse 35, says to them, I'm the bread of life. Me, I am the bread of life. That bread that you're asking for, it's me. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and, you do, and yet you do not believe. So Jesus kind of goes into this clarification of the metaphor. Now let's skip ahead to verse 41. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They looked, they turned to one another, and they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I'm the bread from heaven? They're looking at Jesus through earthly lens. So let's real quick, can we go back to that slide with the three circles? So look what's going on here. There are a core group of people that are devoted to Jesus. In this point in his ministry, there's this core group, his 12 disciples 
And then some others. You, you've got some really close friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus' favorite place to stay while he was on earth was Bethany. That's where they lived. You've got a few other people that are devoted to Jesus. And through their devotion, Jesus is doing ministry and they're seeing it all happen. They're experiencing the movements of God in the flesh. Now on the outskirts of that, you've got all these other people, these crowds that are seeing what Jesus is doing and they're like, yo, we, wanna, we want more. And so Jesus begins to perform miracles. The legs of Jesus' ministry were the words of God and the works of God. And so part of Jesus' ministry was miracles. And Jesus does miracles. But these people became so focused on the miracles that they missed his presence. And John 6 is a great example of that. They're, they're not devoted. If, if anything, they, they, they're desirous. They're kind of looking at Jesus like, all right, give us a little bit more and then we'll believe. Who's the one we should believe in? What sign do you do? Just prove it one more time, and then, yeah, we, we, we might get there. We want a movement, but we're also hungry. So can you meet us in the middle? Jesus questions their motives. You're following me, not because of who I am, but because of what I can do. You don't want a relationship with me. You just want to benefit from me. It's consumerism. Jesus is saying, hey, I want to be the only thing on the menu. I'm the only bread that really matters in this life. And they're like, yeah, that's, that's great, but could you also give us bread from heaven? Like, God did that to our Father. That'd be cool. Could you make bread rain? And Jesus is like, oh, fam, bread's come from heaven. It's me. I'm here. So you've got this core devoted group, but then you've got this ring around them. They're like, yeah, like we're curious. Like, we want to see what you can do. But then you've got that outside ring too. When Jesus starts talking about himself as bread from heaven, look back in verse 41. Just stay on this slide for me though. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, too late, Jeremy. Stay on that circle slide. Back in verse 41, they said, Yo, who does this guy think he is? Isn't this Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph? Don't we know him? Like what is going on? And now all of a sudden you have all these rumors beginning to spread. This can't be God. This cannot be the Son of God, bread from heaven. We know this man. We know his background. We know his history. He comes from Nazareth. We know his roots. I know his aunt. I know his uncle. I know his cousins. This dude's crazy. And now, because of all the distractions, they take their shift away from the core of being devoted to Jesus. Think about this moment. 10,000 plus people have seen God in the flesh produce a miracle and feed them, meet their basic needs. They camp out and they wait until the next morning and they come again to Jesus hungry. And basically he says, hey, if you're really hungry, I got different bread for you. And they're like, oh, we want that bread. And Jesus says, I am that bread. And they're like, mm, we don't want it that much. That's weird. It's strange. Their desire doesn't move them towards devotion because distractions begin to pull them further away. Their desire doesn't put them towards devotion because their distractions pull them further away. John Tyson, the pastor I mentioned earlier, says that in any, at any given time, in any given room, there's three things. The Spirit of God, the flesh of man... And the presence of evil. And the presence of evil is constantly trying to distract us from the Spirit of God by honing in on our flesh and moving us towards more distractions rather than focus on the presence. 
These people were in the presence of God, and he performed a miracle. And then he speaks in some pretty clear ways, but admittedly very creepy ways. Like, hey, my body is bread. That's, that's weird. And because of the distractions, because of what he was saying, and they didn't get it, and they, they couldn't get past who he was, they grumbled. And they, didn't, they weren't led towards devotion, but further away from distraction. Jesus continues to unpack him being the bread from heaven and him offering eternal life. Now, let's go back to the slides of the scripture. Verse 52, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're confused. If you read the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, God has some pretty clear instructions for his people. They weren't allowed to eat meat with blood in it. So if you like your steak rare or medium rare like I do, as everyone should if you're a godly person... I just, I just want to make a note that I, I've been preaching from the Word of God for over 15 minutes, not gotten one applause. I mentioned how you cook your steaks and I get a room. Let's move towards devotion. They weren't allowed to eat meat with blood in it. And here is this man who's just performed a pretty incredible miracle telling them that he has other bread to eat that will not just lead to earthly life, but eternal life. They say, yeah, we want that bread. He says, I am that bread. They say, no, you're not. We know who you are. Jesus makes this profound statement, eat my flesh. It's an invitation to cannibalism, by the way. Don't let your, don't let your familiarity with Bible passages remove the awkwardness from what Jesus is saying. They're not looking at this moment in hindsight like we are. We know, oh, metaphor, oh, flesh, blood, leading up to the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Oh, John 13, he connects the dots. They have no context. All they see is a man standing in front of them saying, eat my flesh. And they're like, hmm, that's a bit extreme for us. Uh, We were in when you were making sourdough come from the basket. Uh, Yeah, Tommy. Uh, but the flesh thing, it's a bit extreme for us. Also, we're not allowed to eat meat with blood in it, huh? holy people, and this is too much. Jesus says, eat my flesh. And they start to dispute and argue, and they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus says to them, he doubles down. He says, truly, truly, verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, on this side of this story, when we're all sitting comfortably in a room in 2023, and we know what Jesus meant, we know that he didn't literally mean cannibalism, we know that he was talking about the metaphor of eternal life found through his body and blood, we know that he was foreshadowing John 13, establishing the Lord's Supper, this is my body broken for you, this is my flesh, this is my blood poured out for you. Like, we know that on this side of the story, but... I would be willing to bet that if, if we were in that crowd on that day with no context of what any of this meant, you and I might conclude, oh, we're not following this guy. He can do all the miracles he wants, but this is too extreme. Cannibalism is not part of my faith equation. I don't care who the dude is or what he can do. I, I do not want to eat a body today. Ew. 
And, uh, and I think you and I would, would probably decide to walk away. Jesus says, whoever eats of my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day. Now he starts talking about like, what? what? Last day? Y'all ever heard like a conspiracy theorist really get after it? Like, I'll raise you up on the last day, brother. Like, I, what is, <clears throat> all you got to do is eat me. <laughs> like, bro, I, I, I am not about this cult life. And Jesus keeps emphasizing, he says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Zombie language, vampire language. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. Then he says, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This bread being his flesh and blood. Now, Jesus' message in John 6 is basically, consume me. My blood, my flesh, consume me. And I will raise you up. I will let you live forever. It's a pretty radical message. If you keep reading John, here's what happens. About a crowd of 12,000 people decide that this Jewish revolutionary, this, this carpenter whom we know his family has gone off the deep end. And about 12,000 people decide in unison, too extreme for us later. And they walk away. 12,000 people decide we're not about that life. And then Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and Jesus' following right here goes from 12,000 to 12 in one sermon. We call these Exodus sermons because you know once you preach them, you will lose people. Jesus is trying to offer life, and they just can't wrap their minds around the concepts. There's devotion to Jesus, which creates desires in people. Man, I want that. I want to follow him. I want to be a disciple. Oh, this looks cool. You mean you get to see him do miracles all the time? This is amazing. Yeah, let's go find him. And then Jesus is like, great, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And instead of being devoted, we get distracted. Man, I, I, I just, I, that's not the Jesus I know. I didn't sign up for that. No, 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 no. I, I just kind of wanted Jesus as long as it was comfortable to me. I didn't want to be challenged Yes, spirit, we want you, but don't convict me too hard. Like, we just have all these conditions. And yet, when we hear about things like what's going on at Asbury, what's going on in California, what's going on in Lee University, Samford, Cedarville, when we hear about things, our initial reaction is, I feel like I'm missing out. How do we get that here? Oh. And Jesus would say, Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it's like, mm, I don't know if I want it that bad. My life's okay. <laughs> Let me give you three things that revival is. Number one, revival is spirit-initiated, not man-generated. I think there's a lot of us that hear about, man, what's going on at Asbury? What's God doing? In fact, I got many texts. Could we create that here? And it's like, no. We can't create it here. God might, 
and we can respond to what the Spirit will do, but we can't make that happen by fabricating it. We can't strategize. I don't know what denomination you might have grown up in. I didn't grow up in church, but I grew up in the South enough to drive past churches, little Southern churches, and they would have little Southern church, and they would have those signs outside that had the plastic letters that you like bend into place, and they're always crooked for some reason, and they're always super. <laughs> They're always super cheesy, and it's like, there would always be these things. It's like, yo, revival next Thursday, 7 p.m., and you'd be like, oh, wow, and what they were saying is, here's what, here's what they mean. We've hired someone. He's going to come in, and he's going to teach for about four nights straight, and you're going to come in, and you're going to feel like the worst you've ever felt in your life because this dude is about to blast you of your sin, homie, and that's revival, in the South, a lot of Southern Baptist churches called Revival that. We've got an evangelist coming in. He's going to preach, and he's going to talk to you about all the sin in your life, and he's going to give you an opportunity to repent, and it's revival. And it's like, mm, okay, I think that's a Southern word to, to try to get after something. Revival, though, is spirit-initiated. It's not man-generated. You and I can't sit here right now and decide, yeah, we want revival. Boom, let's do it. It's got to be spirit-initiated. Uh, theologian, author A.W. Tozer says this. He says, our mistake is that we want God to send revival on our terms. We want revival. We just want him to send it on our terms. We want to get the power of God into our hands to call it to us that, that it may work for us in promoting and furthering our kind of Christianity. So in other words, you hear about what's going on in Asbury. You're like, I want that. And it's like, what, do you want it because you are devoted to Jesus and you are ready to allow the Spirit of God to wash over your heart and lead you to repentance and lead you to full devotion? Or are you chasing an experience? Are you chasing the hype? Because here's the bottom line. If you chase revival, you're going to find an experience. But if you chase Jesus, you're going to find revival. Two very different things. Tozer says, yeah, most of us want revival, but we want it on our terms. We don't, want, we don't want the Spirit to do how He wants. We just want to be able to control it. And that's kind of what you've seen in the Southern culture. of Like, we got a revival scheduled at 7 p.m. Thursday. Like, the Spirit told you He's about to show up? No! But it's going to happen. Okay. The revival is, revival is Spirit-initiated, not man-generated. Number two, revival follows Repentance. Revival follows repentance. If you've seen what's going on in, in Asbury, if you've seen what's going on around the country, if you've seen people that seem wholly devoted to Jesus, radically changed by the presence of Jesus, if you heard me talk about Asbury and you're like, dude, seriously, I, I want to know what it's like to be in a room where you feel the Spirit as if you're in water. If you've seen anything that's going on and you're like, I, I, I want that, let me tell you where the beginning place is. It's repentance of sin. This whole Asbury movement began when 20, 30 students came to the altar of God and put themselves before a holy God and began to pour themselves out. There's sin in my life that's not right, and I need to repent. I've made choices, and I'm continuing to live in those choices, and I need to repent. I have things hidden in my heart that I've tried to keep hidden, and I need to repent. Revival follows repentance. So if you're in this room, and you're like, Dude, I truly want revival it's got to be spirit-initiated, not man-generated, and it's going to follow repentance. If you really want it, the, the best place to start is to bring your sin before a holy God and repent. 
And if that notion seems scary to you, may I just call you back to a sermon that I preached a few weeks ago. That when we confess our sin, it actually frees us to receive the grace of Jesus, not the condemnation of God. According to Romans, 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you have been covered in the blood of Jesus, you are uncondemnable according to the Scriptures. Repentance allows you to receive grace, not condemnation. Revival follows repentance. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill was this early uh, English uh, revivalist in the early 1900s. He died in 1994, but he had a ministry in the, in the early uh, 1900s. This is what he says, the road to revival is often paved with tears and brokenness. This is a dude who like, specialized in movements of God. And one of his conclusions was, revival tends to come when tears are shed and brokenness happens. You want revival? Learn to repent. Number three, revival is a movement, not a moment. Revival is a movement, not a moment. So here's what I mean. What's going on at Asbury right now, we call it a revival. Do you know that Asbury doesn't call it a revival? You know what Asbury calls it? They call it um, the Asbury outpouring. And so literally, if, if I have my bottle of water here, Asbury looks at what's going on as like the Spirit of God has come and in His grace and mercy has just decided to initiate a moment in history where He is literally pouring His presence out, okay? Now I have here, this is, my, this is a, a flower pot, all right? We've got some dirt in here. He's pouring his presence out. Now, we look at this and we think, oh, the Spirit is pouring himself out. We want to experience that. We want to be in that moment. But a moment is not a movement. And if we're talking about true revival, revival is always talked about in the past tense. As people look back on history and they say, yep, that was a, that was a movement. Something happened and it lasted. Right now, we're in a moment. Could be a movement and we're just at the tip of the iceberg, but it's a moment. Asbury calls it the the Asbury outpouring, where the Spirit of God is just hovering in this place, pouring His tangible Spirit out. So the question is, well, what do we do? Here's what we do. I have here a packet of daisy seeds, daisy flowers. I got this as a, a wedding favor. I went to a wedding, and they gave this to me. So here's what we would do. If, if, if there's a, a moment where the Spirit of God is pouring himself out, and we're like, wow, we love Jesus, we're devoted to Jesus, we want to be in that center ring, we don't just want to be desirous, and we definitely don't want to be distracted, we want to be devoted, how can we respond to what the Spirit of God is doing? If we're tuned in to the Spirit pouring himself out, the tangible Spirit pouring himself out, what we would do then is plant seeds in the dirt. We would respond by planting seeds where he's pouring himself out. And so if I were to take these daisy seeds here, I would put them in the dirt. Because the Spirit of God is pouring himself out. The question is not, is the Spirit pouring himself out? The question is, will anyone be there to actually receive it? Well, how do we receive it? How do we plant our seeds in the soil? Great question. Repentance of sin and leaning into what the Spirit is doing in that moment. That's how you get your seeds in the earth. That's how you plant yourself where the Spirit is pouring himself out. What's going on at Asbury right now is a moment. Here's what a movement would look like. Look at this next slide. That's a movement. 
That's where people of God have come together to see the Spirit is pouring Himself out. How do we respond? We get our seeds in the earth, man. We repent of our sin. We put ourselves under the Spirit's leading and prompting. We listen. We submit. We're just abiding in what He's doing, and we're responding accordingly. And that moment then turns into a movement when the people of God have received the Spirit and allowed their seed to be planted and watered by the Spirit's presence, and then have gone from there to spread it elsewhere. That's when it becomes a movement. The moment we call something a revival that only stays in one place, it's not a revival. Revival flows into the surrounding community. You want to know if the Asbury thing is a revival? Look at Wilmore in a few months. Did students begin to pour out into the community and serve and enhance the community and create the realities of kingdom in that community? Did people who visited go back home and and take that same sense of what's going on and it reignite them towards devotion and they call other people towards devotion and we begin to put our seeds in the earth and allow the Spirit's presence to water? Revival's not a moment, it's a movement. But it begins with repentance. And so I thought it would be cool just to lead us in a prayer. Lead us in a prayer of confession. Lead us in a prayer where we come before a holy God and we just sit in his presence and we bring our sin to him and we confess. And if you're like, oh, dude, I, I, I don't have the words, that's fine. This is a guided prayer. I'm simply going to lead us through this prayer, a prayer of confession. It's a very ancient prayer. It's a prayer of confession. And then we're just going to give it some breathing room for you to allow the spirit to do whatever he wants. So that hopefully desirous people move more towards devoted people and that the Spirit of God as he pours himself out would be received, not missed, but received with people who have firmly put their seeds in the earth saying, yes, we want this, we want this. And so let me lead us through this prayer. If you would bow your hearts with me as I lead us in this guided prayer. Almighty Father, we enter in to your presence, confessing the things we try to hide from you and the things we try to hide from others. We confess the heartbreak and sorrow that we have caused that have made it difficult for others to forgive us. We confess the grudges and the bitterness that we have held against our brothers and sisters and our hypocrisy in refusing to forgive those that sin against us. Holy Spirit, lead us to repentance. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too vast to measure. Forgive us for what our lips tremble to name, for when our hands failed to act, and for when our ears failed to listen. Holy Spirit, lead us to repentance. Thank you for your forgiveness and grace that we find in Jesus Christ's shed blood on our behalf. Grant us even more grace to continue to grow in your likeness and image through Jesus Christ, the light of this world. Amen. Give it some breathing room. If the Spirit of God is just tugging at your heart, like, hey, dude, there there is some sin. Let me deal with it. Let me lead you into forgiveness and grace. Let me just give this some breathing room. You sit and you pray and you receive and you talk to the spirit of the living God. 
as we bring our sin before him. Amen.